Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Valorant, Riot Games' newest shooter, Platinum Games' announcements, and we're going to end it with Google Stadia. Actually, really wasn't much news that came out last week or much of what I would consider major news, but I wanted to start off quickly with some updates. First being, um, which has been the going update for the past, I don't know, three weeks or something like that has been the way we've opened the show. Um, and that is the coronavirus or uh, COVID-19. A couple of cancellations that came through last week, Eve Online's annual Fan Fest, which was scheduled to take place April 2nd through April 4th, was canceled. The uh, SNK World Championship in Japan, scheduled to take place late March, was postponed indefinitely. And the biggest cancellation from last week was GDC 2020, which has been officially postponed um, to this coming summer. And um, last week, I think the the prominent dropouts last week from GDC were Microsoft and Epic. And then soon after, I think within 24 hours, there were talks about GDC being canceled. And then the official news came directly from GDC that that the event was officially canceled. And their plans are to hold the event sometime this summer. Uh, They did confirm that tickets are going to be refunded. Um, If there were speakers at GDC that choose to record their, their talks on video... GDC will make them available for free online for anyone to watch. They also confirmed that the GDC awards will still take place, but they will now be live streamed via Twitch and they'll take place at some day that falls within that week. Um, GDC was originally supposed to take place March 16th through March 20th. Um, and that's it. Yeah. So they, 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 uh, postponed it to the summer. Now it just makes a lot of sense. And the reason why it makes sense now more than ever is just a given fact that the United States of America is now sort of at the very, very beginning of the coronavirus hitting the country. So, um, it's just not, I really, I mean, this is just me personally speaking. I wouldn't advise anyone to be in a really big public place right now, uh, especially if we're talking about um, anywhere within the, uh, you know, um, where this was set to take place, which is San Francisco or anywhere in the state of California. I just would not uh, recommend it right now. They have um, 8,000 people that are undergoing testing for the possibility of coronavirus. I think over 10 people have confirmed cases of coronavirus in the state of California. And um, the scariest one of all is that in California, there were two unknown cases. And that's the, like, that, that's the really scary one uh, when we're talking about an epidemic uh, or a pandemic, whatever you um, choose to call this at its current state. Um, but an unknown case is basically someone got it and they do not have a clear answer as to how it might have happened. Um, because they they did not travel abroad you know for a lot of people you know like there was a confirmed case here in New York State it was a woman that traveled to uh, Iran I think it was Um, you know obviously there's people that were traveling from China in different states that that got it Uh, but there is at least I think it's one or two cases in uh, California right now where they just have no idea where they got it from, which means that there's a possibility they contracted it from someone else that does not know that they have been infected. So I think that's the reason why, you know, personally for me, I would avoid all big convention centers or just big gatherings of crowds. I just personally wouldn't do it at this point in time. I mean, me personally, I usually try to avoid crowds uh, probably kind of at all times, but especially during flu season. And now it's just an, an even greater elevated threat with the coronavirus. And, um, you know, the ESA has confirmed that they are moving full steam ahead with E3 2020. They said nothing has changed. They're, you know, moving ahead with everything that they had planned. And, you know, for me personally, just seeing as this is just the beginning of what we're seeing with the coronavirus, I kind of don't see how E3 can happen unless there's a drastic turnaround in this situation within the next few months. Um, 
But for me personally speaking, as a, a citizen of the United States of America, it just seems like the country is just not really properly prepared to take on coronavirus. There are all these talks about, you know, not enough test kits and the price of a test kit. And now we're talking about if there's a vaccine, what's the price of the vaccine? And, you know, it just seems like uh, the country is not really prepared. And then you see, unfortunately, what the president has done. I don't want to get too much into politics in the show, but it just seems that we're not very prepared for something like this. And um, especially like I just talked about with what's happening in uh, in California, I I just and and you you know you add to the fact that this year, uh, because of the fact that they added ten thousand more public passes. Uh, E3 is set to have his highest attendance on record. So right now they are tracking um, to have an attendance of over 70,000 people. And I just feel like that's really just not the place that you want to be at. And then on behalf of the ESA, it's just a little irresponsible at this point to throw on this show. But I guess obviously for them, it's smart. Play a little bit more of a wait and see approach. But it seems that there are a lot of companies out there that are just not willing to go to these shows and put their employees at risk. Um, especially with, you know, where we are now digitally, a lot of these companies can just record this information beforehand and just release it through their own individual channels during the week of E3 or the week where E3 was supposed to be. So um, I think there are a lot of companies right now that are probably already creating these contingency plans just in case if uh, E3 2020 were to get canceled. But as of right now, just once again, talking about the fact that uh, we're just at the very beginning, obviously, you know, universal healthcare is a big topic here in the USA, but I feel like the fact that there is no universal healthcare, there are probably a lot of people walking around that are sick, that aren't going to the doctor, get checked up, who knows that they have it. Um, you know, this thing can spread um, pretty viciously here in, in the U.S. So, you know, you know, we'll just have to kind of wait and see on that. Another update from last week's show was Xbox Series X. Major Nelson confirmed on his latest podcast that suspended games on Xbox Series X can survive a system update. So uh, one of the pieces of information that was solidified last week by Microsoft and Xbox is that on the Series X, you can suspend games, which was a feature that the Xbox One had, but you can only suspend one game at a time. They confirmed that you can suspend multiple games. They haven't said exactly how many multiple exactly means. Obviously, it's at least two. Um, but then uh, Major Nelson did confirm that the suspension, somehow the way that I look at it, is, is like magically and miraculously can survive a system update and a system reboot, which means that if there's a system update, um, whatever game you suspend it, it'll, it'll, it'll still be there when you get back um, right into it, which is pretty cool. He also announced something called audio ray tracing, which is sort of a buzzword in my opinion. I don't think it's really technically what it is, but they, they said it's a new way to deliver spatial audio, which, okay, sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and our last update from last week's show was NVIDIA GE Force Now. Raphael Van Lyrop, the director of the popular survival game The Long Dark, confirmed that his studio asked NVIDIA to remove the game from GeForce Now simply because they never asked the studio for permission to include the game on the service, which is insane when you kind of retroactively look at it. Super weird to have a service, even if even if the service, all it's doing is confirming that a person is owning that game through a different service such as Steam. It's really weird for any company to begin a service and then not communicate to publishers and developers that your game will be a part of our service and sort of include a way for these companies to opt out. Um, and and then also he followed up in a, in, in, in a tweet, which I'm still not convinced this is super real. He might just be joking, but he said, quote, NVIDIA offered us a free graphics card as an apology, so maybe they'll offer you the same thing. Not sure exactly how realistic that is or how real that is. Um, I, I found this story a little bit weird because, number one, yes, it's although it is weird that NVIDIA um, added the game to the service without um, telling this uh, publisher or developer, it's also one of those things where 
mean, just personally speaking, I would not remove it from the service just because the payment is already there. It's not like you're not, uh, it's not like you haven't already received payment for that game. That game has already been sold. So to just use a, a service that allows users to be able to play your game anywhere, uh, at any time, theoretically, is a little bit weird to remove it. Kind of seemed like he hinted at them having some sort of distribution deal with Steam or something like that, and that's that was one of the reasons that led to the removal. But it also just seemed that the developer was just not comfortable with someone just saying, "Yeah, we're going to put your game on our service." So it just it kind of seemed like a cancellation based more on principle than than kind of uh, anything else. Uh, our first piece of news for the week actually comes from a reveal that actually happened late this morning. Riot Games finally official officially revealed the name of Project Ares, which they announced last year. It's now officially named Valorant, and that it is their 5v5 tactical team-based shooter. It is free-to-play. It will be out summer 2020. It will only be on PC. It doesn't really sound like they have any interest at all in bringing this to console, although they haven't explicitly said no, as far as I know, but uh, launching it will only be available on PC. Um, now, a few things about this is, you know, on the surface level, I feel like a lot of shooter fans and especially Overwatch fans will look at this game and, and just not understand it um, because the game just does not look very great it's not really up to par of something that you would consider visually a game that is releasing in 2020 the art style is kind of unique but as a whole the game looks very very underwhelming now one way to look at it is yes this is sort of alpha gameplay this isn't final gameplay that's being shown right now um but it probably won't improve much from what you're seeing right now and that's because this game is being built directly as a competitor to Counter-Strike uh, Counter Global Offensive. I don't look at this as a competitor to Overwatch, just not really in the slightest. I don't see it, this type of game coming out and then siphoning off a bunch of Overwatch users. If there's an Overwatch player that decides to go to this game, it's because they probably already just got sick of overwatch not really because this game looks like a better choice um this game is really going after that counter-strike audience because it's really being built as a hardcore tactical shooter the way that counter-strike is you know counter-strike is you know very bare bones on the surface graphically it's not really winning any awards um, but that's because the game is built to be run even on a low end pc to hit at least 30 frames and be smooth and be playable. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to netcode and minimizing lag and things like that, you know, this is the, the way that you want your shooter to look when you're talking about making a competitive shooter for serious hardcore shooter fans. It, all, it, it reminds me a little bit of Overwatch, which is Overwatch, I, I, I do personally play on the PC, and not a single PC player, pro or otherwise, ever plays with the graphics up. Everyone, the moment you boot, boot up the game if it's for the first time, you, you, you turn everything down to low because you want the, the most frames possible. You know, I'm, I'm able to hit you know, an average of 100 frames per, 180 frames per second, but that's only because I turn everything down to low, but it is the ideal way to play the game no one wants to play online at 60 frames per second this is not a good experience now what they're also doing is they're uh, introducing dedicated servers for each region which will run at a 128 tick rate which is to me is mind-blowing when i first read that stat because i mean i think this is the f first and only game that ever runs at such a high tick rate i've never heard of a game running at this high of a tick rate counter-strike global offensive uses 64 tick servers uh even a game like apex legend that goes down to as low as 20 i think the tick rate for overwatch is also 64 matching counter-strike it's around 64 i think and uh for those that don't know uh the, the best way to explain tick rate is that the higher the tick rate value the faster player receives input updates from the server which in turn makes an online game feel more responsive and truer to the player side experience so layman's terms it's almost like um 
the way your monitor has a refresh rate, a tick rate is in layman's terms, how quickly the server re refreshes information going to and from it. So it allows for a, just a much more responsive game. You really feel like, you know, where you're aiming, where you're shooting in that split second is exactly where that projectile is set to hit within that hitbox. And like I said, I've never seen a game with a tick rate that high. And then the fact that they're running dedicated service for each region, uh, they're, they're targeting a tick rate of 128. They're launching this summer. And I think they're launching, in, not even that I think, they are launching in multiple regions simultaneously is pretty mind-blowing to me, especially given the fact that this game is free-to-play. Even Counter-Strike, there is a fee. I think Counter-Strike, I believe it's like 15 bucks to get that game. This game is free-to-play. They haven't said exactly how the microtransactions are set to work. They did confirm that it's not a competitive advantage. It looks like it's more cosmetics or maybe gun skins and things like that. They talked about something called, I think it was it was called Gun Buddies, which is, uh, I, I guess, like a little keychain or something like that that hangs off of your gun. So selling things like that, um, I think selling variants and different colors for, for, for the different agents is what they call them, is, is what they're calling the different characters. They're called agents in this game. I guess it's another way for them to make money. Valorant will also use Riot Direct, which is a global networking infrastructure that Riot built for League of Legends to guarantee players always get the fastest and most stable connection to multiplayer servers. Um, you know, so as, as I said, it looks like they're really, really going after Counter-Strike to the point that uh, when I was seeing the gameplay today, I mean, it looks exactly like Counter-Strike. When I saw the game, I did not think Overwatch in my head for a second, that for a, not even for a split second in that um, go through my mind. Like, yes, there are character abilities and there are kind of ultimates the way that you would see in Overwatch, but the ultimates are, are few and far between. You know, the game is played in the typical 24 rounds and... They said that usually like you would only get an ult every three to five rounds or something like that I was reading. So it's not something that you would typically see in every single match. Although the character abilities are something that you can use a lot more frequently. I don't think it's like a, a, a one-time buy the way that the ultimates are. Um, but I didn't really see Overwatch when I was looking at it. I, I just literally saw Counter-Strike. It, it almost looks like a kind of a straight copy to be honest with you even the way that uh, the positioning of the guns the way the gun swapping works the fact that if you're you can swap to a knife and run faster the way that you can in counter-strike they have a purchase system at the beginning of every round the same way the counter-strike is the one and only mode that they've shown is similar to counter-strike which um you know it is it is elimination you have one life per round but you can also uh, set and defuse a bomb, although in this game it's called, I think it's called a spike. Um, so it's very apparent that they're going after that Counter-Strike um, pool. You know, that's really that's really the player that they're going after. You know, just this weekend, Counter-Strike Go set a new concurrent player record. Over 925,000 players were on simultaneously. And some people are attributing this to the coronavirus in different countries, uh, such as Korea and China. And uh, the fact that a lot more people are staying indoors nowadays um, over, especially in those countries. So that's probably what um, led to that new record being broken. But, you know, Counter-Strike is still one of the biggest esports across the world. Um, and I just feel like um, Valve, I don't think they've put themselves in a position to um, have a competitor that can overtake them. It's just there hasn't really been a direct competitor to Counter-Strike. There just there really just hasn't. You, you know what we're what we've been seeing a lot in the last year or so has been have been a lot of competitors to the battle royale genre, but we haven't really seen a competitor to a tactical uh, shooter that's in the vein of Counter-Strike, which is one headshot you're dead. You know, four shots to the body you're gone. You know that's the way these games are are, are, are built. They're built where, you know, aiming is king. Aim will always win you a battle. You know, it's not the same for a game like Overwatch. You know, the 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 team with the, the best aim 
doesn't really mean they're going to win every single fight. In a game like Counter-Strike, that's really what it comes down to. Um, so that's really what this game is built for. But, you know, to me, the fact that they're running these dedicated servers. Um, also, one thing I, I, I forgot to mention is that the game is built from the ground up to to be anti-cheat. is something that was kind of built into development from the very beginning was to build a game that would hopefully make it impossible for people to, to cheat at or use aimbots or exploits and things like that. You know, obviously that fails to be seen. You'll have to wait until the game actually comes out to see if something like that is actually even possible. Um, but a game like Counter-Strike is played with aimbots and wall hacks and things like that. So one example that I read was in typical games, when your cursor goes over an enemy, it changes color. And that is a way for aimbots to, to be able to be written is almost um, uh, looking at the, the, the pixel where crosshair is and the moment it changes the color, you know that that's an enemy and then the aimbot activates, things like that. Uh, in this game, the cursor does not change color. So that's kind of just one example of um, their thinking when it came to building the game from the ground up in order to stop people from cheating. Uh, but there's a type of game where I looked at it it's just, it's just not for me. This is not really a game that I'm interested in. Look, it's free to play. Am I going to try it? Absolutely. Hell yeah, I'll try it. Uh, they did announce that there will be a beta before it comes out in summer 2020. That's their target. Their claim is as long as the, the, beta, the, the beta goes well, they'll release in summer 2020. So unless there's something just really, really wrong going or something that went wrong with the servers. We can expect this to come out in summer 2020. Um, but the way that I look at it, once again, with the server cost, I mean, it's not cheap to run a dedicated server, number one, and then to run a server with a dedicated 128 tick rate. I, I mean, the cost of that must be not cheap. Uh, so um, the fact that they're doing all of this and then... Um, they are um, making this game free to play. I will say it's very, very interesting. I personally do think it's the right way to go. And uh, with Riot Games, we've seen what they've done with League of Legends. Um, this type of game, you know, this team, this the the team at Riot Games is built um, to elevate a game through esport and competition. So, I mean, it, 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 this game is. Definitely looking like a force to be reckoned with. Do not be fooled. I know that there are a lot of gamers that are going to look at this game and say, wow, this game looks horrible. And it's like, honestly, it's not that it looks horrible. It's that it's built to run that way. And these types of games, just like Counter-Strike, the type of player that plays those games, they could give two shits about fog and lighting and ray tracing and all that crap. Um, what matters to them is ping, tick rate, you know, how responsive the game is. That's all that matters. So I think it's really cool to see Riot Games sort of put that target on the, dart, on the dartboard and be able to hit it the way that they've hit it um, because that's really what they're going for is they're really trying to siphon off uh, people from Counter-Strike. Now, our next story deals with Platinum Games. Platinum Games uh, made two announcements last week. Uh, first one was they announced the opening of Platinum Games Tokyo, built to work on live service games. So this is going to be Platinum Games' second studio. Their first one, oof, I'm trying to remember where their first studio is. I don't know why I can't remember. I'm thinking Kyoto, but that doesn't sound right. Um, I actually don't remember where their first studio is, but this is their second studio. Um... And um, this is this studio opening is a direct result of their partnership with Tencent Games, um, and that capital investment that Tencent uh, made. So they're opening the second studio. Um, you know, if you remember back when they first talked about this capital investment, the main thing was that they wanted to be able to publish their own games, and the opening of this new studio is built in order to facilitate something like that. They also confirmed that they want this new studio to focus on live service games, which are games like, you know, Division 2, Destiny, Rainbow Six, an online experience that's constantly, constantly updated. 
um, in order to last several years. And I mean, personally for me, I'm definitely excited to see something like that coming from Platinum Games. We've seen what they can do with single player for so long. I think it's really interesting to see what they'll be able to do um, when it comes to something like a multiplayer game. I mean, I would love to see something like a fast-paced third-person multiplayer game. I feel like we've seen so much first-person, first-person, first-person that sometimes people forget um, how great a third-person shooter can be, especially something like Gears of War. I remember even like Uncharted. I remember um, really enjoying that multiplayer. A lot of people look back at Last of Us multiplayer as being really, really good. But a lot of these games, they're built as kind of complements to the single player. So I think it'd be really good to see a third-person um, multiplayer shooter um, that is built from the ground up just for that as a live service game coming from platinum games with their experience something really really fast paced smooth i think will be really amazing their second announcement was um what they call project gg they, they kind of had a, a short teaser trailer kind of looked like giant fighting robot fighting against something that like godzilla i don't really know exactly how to explain it but um it's being headed by kamiya uh and uh in the trailer, they confirmed that it is the ending of the, ooh, what, what was it called? The Hero Trilogy, um, which includes Beautiful Joe and Wonderful 101. Um, we're part of that that sort of uh, hero series or that hero umbrella. So this game will be the third one within that series. So, I mean, we can really get much more other than that, other than that teaser trailer, and the fact that this was confirmed as the first ever published Platinum Games title, which means that they they are the developer and the publisher, which obviously brings, I mean, it, it must be a lot of pressure for a company to, to move into their own individual publishing. That can't be easy. Um, but hopefully this company finds success. I think, um, you know, without argument, if you look at their, um resume for the last few years you know there there aren't many studios that are as consistent as platinum games because yes yeah, some of their games might not be huge um platinum sellers but um you can't deny the talent of of that team which for those that don't remember platinum games was started by fulver a former clover studio um heads uh, which is where Kamiya came from. That was the studio that made Okami. Uh, the absolutely amazing Jesus, I really wish it would have come back, beautiful Joe. <laughs> um, and then they uh, left Clover when it was uh, shut down and they they uh, founded Platinum Games. And, um, you know, when you look at their resume, starting with Mad World for the, for the Wii, when you look at characters like Bayonetta, Vanquish, Anarchy Reigns, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, Wonderful 101, Near Automata, which sold over 4 million copies, Astro Chain, which came out for um, Switch last year, the upcoming Babylon's Fall for PS4. And you think about all these games and you realize that um, how amazing they are. And then number two, the fact that Platinum Games owns none of it, you know, because when you're a developer and you're looking for a publisher for funding, you know, they unfortunately, as part of that deal, is that they own the rights to the character. For example, Bayonetta is owned 50-50. Sega owns 50% of the character, and Nintendo owns the remaining 50%. So it's it can't be a really good feeling to work on a team and create a character that, within gaming, is as well-known as someone like Bayonetta and know that you just have no control over what happens to that game. Now, they are publishing the third Bayonetta, I mean, excuse me, developing the third Bayonetta with Nintendo as a publisher. They did confirm that Bayonetta 3 is still, still being worked on, even though they haven't spoken about it. Um, but then the fact is that after Bayonetta 3, you know, Nintendo can choose to have another publisher make a Bayonetta game as long as Sega is on board. And then Platinum just has absolutely nothing to do with it. Do I ever see Nintendo doing that? No. I mean, you really want Platinum to be the one working on this. Um, but just the fact that you don't have control of that character, you can't really move that character into whatever direction you want. Same thing with Wonderful 101. Um, uh, same thing with a game like Astral Chain. So, you know, to see Platinum Games finally get this opportunity um, 
going off of that backing from Tencent to be able to go into their own individual publishing. I mean, it's amazing. I'm, I'm very excited to see what this team can do and what, you know, we all, cause we all know what they're capable of. I mean, when it comes to action games, I, I just look at it as platinum games is on their own level. Like no one can even touch them. When you, when you play a game like Vanquish or you play a game like Bayonetta, I sort of feel like there's really nothing else like it. And when I look at a game like Babylon's Fall coming out for PS4, I think it's scheduled for uh, end of this year, early next year. Um, I look at it and even playing through something like Astral Chair, I'm like, man, no other team can do action the way that this team can. I just love how smooth their action is. And then now that we're moving into the next another a new console cycle, <coughs> excuse me. And um, just seeing what they're they'll be capable of. I'm very excited for Platinum Games. I'm very excited to see what else they have um, to talk about. Now there is one more announcement from that Platinum Four that they had talked about uh, a few weeks back. First one was the Wonderful 101 remaster. Um, then there was the announcement of the studio opening Project GG. So there is one more left, and I believe they did confirm that it is a brand new game. So I think it'll be really exciting. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this is something that they confirm for the next generation consoles. And um, yeah, we'll just kind of have to wait and see what that is, but very, very happy to, 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 to see and hopeful for the future of what platinum game has to talk about. Now, our final story has to do with Google Stadia. Um, as I said, there really just wasn't a lot of major news last week, but I wanted to talk about Google Stadia again. I know that we talk about Stadia a lot on, uh, this show, I, I really try to refrain from being that person that just completely dumps on Google Stadia. But sometimes Google makes it, you know, they've made it so, I'm not going to, I don't want to use the word enjoyable, but they've made it a little easy to, you know, for lack of a better term, just kind of shit on them. And and I think the reason why is because you realize as as we've seen the months pass by and especially watching the months go by between announcement to launch and um you know as a person like myself that loves this industry so much enjoys talking about this industry every second that I'm able to when i see um what i'll consider google an outsider to this industry come in and you get that feeling that they come in with this absolute arrogance that they can just step into this industry and just dominate from the very beginning. I feel like it makes it much easier. Um, I mean, speaking for myself to look down upon Google and, you know, instead of praising everything they're doing right or everything that they will hopefully do right you're almost more hopeful for the mistakes just to, you know, sit there as a person that loves this industry and say, we told you so, you know, this obviously was not as easy as your team really thought it was going to be. Now, Business Insider reports that they spoke with game developers and publishers who said the two main reasons that games aren't on Stadia is because Google didn't offer them enough money and they don't trust Google to stick with gaming in the long term. Now, Google not sticking around in the long term has been a concern from the very beginning that Stadia was announced. Um, obviously, Google is known at, for being a company that will introduce something. In my opinion, when they introduce these certain uh, features and items and applications that they go to shut down a few years later. The way that I always look at those is it always, for me, it shows that Google sometimes enters um, different facets of technology without being fully prepared. And I think they as a company do look at things as, well, we're, we're so big, if we were to replicate what this other company is doing, we'll be able to get away with it. And I think that they the one thing that they lack is really coming through with, they can come through with the technology, but their execution is, is what's really piss poor. And that's what leads to them shutting things down so quickly. So I understand when people look at Google and that joke of, well, Stadia won't be here for much longer. And the one thing I've always said about Stadia is that the technology is there. 
You know, I remember playing the beta and understanding that the technology is there. They have it, which is something that Google is really good at. They're really good at the technology portion of it, but everything else that surrounds it, they're really, really bad at. Now, Stadia released about four months ago. The launch date was November 19th, and they only have 28 titles. And I think... If we're talking about a brand new system launching within this industry, 28 titles in four months might actually sound par for the course, you know? Um, And the reason why I would think that if this was a brand new console industry entering the industry, 28 titles actually doesn't seem very low in my opinion. But the difference is because of the way that Google chose to sell stadia to the masses 28 sounds extremely low because number one is consumers are going to look at it as well you're just a digital platform um there is no hardware you're housing the systems the you've talked about how simple the process is to port a game from console to stadia you know bethesda went on your stage and talked about how easy it was to get doom eternal running on stadia how fast and how easy it was to get that ported over and the fact that you only have 28 titles is an immense failure and it's not a failure of technology it's obviously there's some sort of failure somewhere else within this system that's causing this to happen now they claim that 120 games are coming this year But once again, the fact that they only have 28 games. And the funny thing is that when you look at that library, it's just piss poor. The library just isn't as varied as it should be. Um, They're missing a lot of major games, you know, even free-to-play games. The fact that they do not have um, uh, Fortnite on there is just like, what the hell is going on? How could you guys not have Fortnite on Stadia by now? Um, You know, how could you not have these big... Indie games are exploding, such as Untitled Goose Game, for example. How do you not have these on Stadia yet? So one prominent indie developer said they were approached by the Stadia team, but said that offers and incentives to go to Stadia were non-existent. Um, Business Insider claims several prominent indie developers and two publishing executives echoed those sentiments. So for those that don't know, when a game comes into a platform especially if it's a timed exclusive or an exclusive there is an incentive right for example we're just talking about untitled goose game untitled goose game launched on nintendo switch first i think it had what a three to six month head start over the ps4 xbox one version um it also launched exclusively on epic game store in order for those deals to happen nintendo has to pay untitled goose game some sort of money so what Nintendo would do, for example, is, hey, we'll, we'll waive the licensing fee. Um, you know, hey, if you guys need additional uh, kits in order to build this game, don't worry about it. We'll send it to you free of charge. Um, and we'll also, you know, match your first 200,000 sales or something like that or, you know, something. There has to be some sort of usually a cash in, in, in infusion. Hey, uh, give us exclusivity for three months, $200,000 or something like that, right? Um, what indie developers are saying or what they uh, told Business Insider um, was that didn't exist. It was really Stadia going to them and say, hey, would you be interested in bringing this game over to Stadia? Maybe they offer some sort of baseline support in order to help them with the port. Um, but that was kind of it. That, that was really all that they that they offered them. One publishing executive said, quote, there isn't enough money there. And the offer was so low that it wasn't even part of the conversation, which is pretty bad. Another indie developer said, quote, when we're looking at these types of deals, we're looking at is this enough money where we have the resources to make what we want? Or is this an exclusivity deal that gives us security? One developer also said, with Google's history, I don't even know if they're working on Stadia in a year. That wouldn't be something crazy that Google does. It's within their track record. Now, that concern that Google can shut down Stadia at any point, uh, according to Business Insider, it was brought up repeatedly, unprompted, by every single person that they spoke with. Now, they, they didn't really give a number in terms of how many developers and publishers that they spoke to, how many individuals they spoke to. All they confirmed was that everyone spoke um, 
on the condition of anonymity because they still work for those companies. They don't want any um, thing coming back to them, which makes sense. Um, but for every single person to bring that up while speaking to Business Insider, just randomly just to say, yeah, obviously we're concerned that Google Stadia, Google can shut down Stadia at any point, is really not uh, the way you want to start a relationship with a publisher with that kind of being in their mind. Um, one developer who decided not to publish on Stadia said, quote, it wasn't just a financial thing. At the end of the day, I'm asking the question, why would I do this? And there was no positive reason to move forward. There wasn't really anything to want us to get in the door other than to be first on the platform. Um, I mean, it's pretty bad. And I think, um, you know, the way that I've always looked at, at Google and Stadia was I looked at it as, as excitement, which to me, I was like, this is the beginning of the future for our industry. Cloud gaming will be the future for our industry. And I thought it was great to see a company come in um, with um, another solution for cloud gaming in order to expand choice, um, in order to expand the reach of, of, of gaming, in order to get gaming into everyone's hands. You know, the way that I looked at Stadio was, wow, if you know Google starts putting these on Pixel phones, from the very beginning, pushing Stadia, you know, it's just more sales for publishers. It's more people that have access to video games. So I always looked at Google as a positive, as a great thing. But then the way that also looked at Google is that what was weird is that there was this feeling that they were getting off on the right foot. You know, the fact that they partnered with Ubisoft, they had Assassin's Creed Odyssey as their test game when they launched uh, the... Um, what was it called? Project Stream, I think was the name of it, which was the name of their their beta. Um, the fact that they allowed you to play Assassin's Creed for like, I think it was like three months or something like that. After it was over, everyone got a free copy of Assassin's Creed for PC. You know, like they went through all these routes in order to get the beta done right. And I looked at it as like, okay, cool. They have a strong partnership with Ubisoft. That's a great first start. Um, when they first spoke about Stadia, they talked about all these different partnerships. Obviously, the only one that we really saw come to fruition was Bethesda. Um, you know, when, when they talked about all the features that they were announcing, me being a gamer, I knew that there was no way that they were going to have those available at launch. Um, but then you, from that point moving forward, you just realized that it was just all uh, a smokescreen. And I think for us that are gamers and are within this industry, we're, we're able to see through that smoke, right? We're able to look at it and say, yeah, there's no way that they can deliver all of this. But the issue was that Google could have done this the right way, but they obviously didn't. Now, the route to take if you're coming in brand new into this industry, to me, is with humility. You have to start off with forging those relationships with developers and publishers. And in my opinion, if I was within that Google team, the first relationships that I'm building are with, 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 uh, indies like that's, you know, we've seen such a resurgence of indie titles within the last few years because of the focus that's being put in, but that was put in by Sony and Microsoft. And then the focus that we saw from Nintendo. And then the fact that the switch came out, this portable gaming system, um, you know, we're consistently and constantly hearing from indie platformer platforms, excuse me, indie developers and publishers about how much better the Switch versions are selling compared to the console versions, proving that people want to be able to access these types of games anywhere. So the fact that they didn't forge those relationships early on was a huge mistake because when you think about a game like Stardew Valley, how is this game not on Stadia yet? This is the type of game that players especially if you're able to um uh get a developer or even help a developer or even fund that developer in order to get um a safe transfer system built you know if, if you're talking about launching stardew valley on on stadia and um that developer is able to to um, to build in a safe transfer system, like that's just a huge W when it comes to Google Stadia. That's just something that other no one is really offering right now. So the fact that they didn't forge those relationships early on is is telling, right? Um, I mean, I I don't really I, I'm I'm really not in one of those positions where 
I I'm cheering for Stadia to fail. I'm just I'm just not. I'm just not really one of those type of of cynics. Like part of me looks at it as this is your own this is of your own creation. The failure that Stadia is going through right now it has nothing to do with a cold reception from gamers and it has everything to do with poor execution on Google's part. And the way that I look at it is number one was the fact that there was no free tier and we still have yet to see a free tier of Google Stadia is a huge, huge mistake. Um, and I like to, to put it as Google is going through a chicken or egg situation and something has to come first. So um, you have to build a base in order to attract developers and publishers to put games on your on your platform. But then you need developers and publishers to put games in your platform in order to build your base. So one of those things has to come first. And when you're looking at Stadia, a brand new player within this industry, the thing that has to come first is building a base. And the only way that you're going to build a base is to lose money. You have to lose money. So the fact that they're not offering incentives to any developer shows that they're not willing to lose money. The fact that um, they don't have a free tier yet, in my opinion, is not a limitation on the technology. I think it's an unwillingness to lose money. The fact that the game, the, the, the system launched with the only entry point being a $129 kit means you're not putting yourself in a position to lose money or not lose, I guess, invest money. You know, it takes money to make money. So... The fact that Google never put themselves into that position to begin with, how are you going to build this base um, if you're not offering people an incentive as to why they should come to your platform? And as more time passes by, as more time passes where, you know, you do not introduce a free tier, this um, rumor, because I'm still going to call it a rumor, of Google just all of a sudden shutting down Stadia at some point, it's only going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And as a gamer, do you want to buy a game on a platform knowing or kind of in the back of your mind that Google can shut this down at any point? I mean, are you confident that Google's going to give you your money back? I don't think they're going to give you your money back. I mean, how, I mean, are you confident that they're going to keep your game, a server just for that game running for the rest of time? No, I really don't see them doing that either. So, you know, there's just too much of a risk in order to invest in the Stadia ecosystem right now. I know that some people looked at Google Stadia and they said, oh, their mistake was not introducing the Netflix for video games, charging a flat fee and letting you access library of games. It's just, it's impossible. It's just actually impossible for Google to do. Obviously, I've already proven that they're unwilling to lose money. But on top of that, they just don't have the relationship or the clout built in order to convince these companies that they should put their games on their service for for nothing i mean because how how would you structure that payment plan they get a percentage of that monthly fee or something like that i mean the reason why xbox and playstation are able to do it with xbox game pass and playstation now is because they forged those relationships over decades you know you can't come in as google and within one to two years build these relationships and think that something like this is going to happen. And then you realize that their focus is just not in the right place. The fact that Google is buying up studios is building their own studio to, to create a game that we're not going to see for two, maybe two to three years. It just makes no sense. Like, why are you investing your money into something like this? You might as well take that money <laughs> that it cost you to build run a studio we're talking about millions of dollars in order to build a game that will only exist in a platform you might as well use that money to give to indie developers find these gems and fund them in order to get one month exclusivity or something like that or just at the very least fund it to bring to your platform you know so i think google i mean it, it's to no one's surprise by now it's very very apparent that Google just that Google just has absolutely no idea what they're doing. It doesn't really seem that they have a plan, even though now that the the you know the ship is seems to be sinking. It doesn't even seem like they're 
shoveling water out the boat. It's really confusing in terms of what it is that they're what what the thought process is within that Stadia team right now in order to keep this thing going. You know, like they're really talking a lot about Baldur's Gate three. I've been noticing on Twitter like these. Their, their, their Twitter will not stop talking about Baldur's Gate 3. And the reason why is because outside of PC, Baldur's Gate 3 is only confirmed for Google Stadia. And that team, it doesn't seem like they're very interested in making console versions. So that's why they're pushing Baldur's Gate so hard. But it's like, you know, gamers that are looking at Baldur's Gate are going are gonna get the PC version. They're not interested in the Stadia version. And if you're talking about a generic gamer audience, Baldur's Gate is not the game for them. That's such a core game that it's 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 not for the regular Stadia user. And then if Baldur's Gate comes out and they partner with NVIDIA to get Baldur's Gate on GeForce now, why the hell would I even be interested on in getting a stadium? I'm getting it on PC and I'll be able to um access it from anywhere, right? Um Another thing that I found interesting was that uh, very recently, 9to5Google noticed a couple of strings of code underneath the latest Stadia update that hint at upcoming features, but obviously we don't know exactly when these will happen. Um, they confirmed that there is a uh, code of text that alludes to them finally allowing YouTube streaming of Stadia games. Um, they also found data that hinted at um, allowing people to register a username for free, which obviously alludes to the fact that they might finally be introducing a free tier. Um, and then there were strings of code to show that they are capping the amount of free accounts per area. So there's a string of text that says, sorry, Stadia is full in your area. Obviously, we don't know what area means. Is that uh, per server base? Is that per state? Is that per country? We don't know. Um, and then there's another string of text that says, quote, in order to provide the best game quality for everyone, we limit the number of accounts on Stadia. We've hit that limit, but we're working hard to build additional room in the Stadia cloud so more people can enjoy the same high quality game performance. Please check back in the future for new player availability. So th this to me seems very confusing. Obviously, if you're offering a free tier for your service, they're, matches, they're matching what <clears throat> NVIDIA is doing, which is there is a cap in terms of how many people can be on a server at the same time. But on NVIDIA GeForce Now, there's a line. You can basically get in line for free to access a play session for a play session for one hour. This string of text is basically saying that they're capping the amount of users that can register in an area at one time, which means like theoretically speaking, if in I introduce Google Stadia free, it opens up. I have a limit of 100,000 users across the United States. Once 100,000 people register for free, I'm capping it. And I'm telling people to wait another, what, month or something like that so I can register 100,000 more accounts. It's kind of weird because this doesn't allude to people being able to either get uh, a limited time session in order to... Um, in order to provide people with the opportunity to get in line and get into a session at some point. Um, and uh, it doesn't really seem like they're allowing you to theoretically get in line. Once there's a cap, you either have a username or not. You can't use a service. I don't know. It seems very confusing. Obviously, this is just text hidden underneath an update. None of this is confirmed in terms of how exactly it's going to work. Um, obviously server strain is something that's very important when we're talking about a cloud. This is one thing that I feel like Microsoft is going to be very, very generous with when it comes to project X cloud. I don't think theoretically it's going to be possible for them to say, Hey, if, if it's for free and you're streaming from your system, it doesn't matter. You can access it at any time. Our server will be able to take it. We just really don't know exactly how that's going to work, but I'm sure whatever solution they come up with is going to be a lot more generous than what we're seeing from Stadia and what we're seeing from NVIDIA. So, you know, as I said, I, I, I'm not one of those people that sit back and I look at this and I say, man, I really want Google to fail. But the way that I look at this is I, I don't understand how as a new user, you can look at Google and all the coverage it's getting 
from all of these different publications and think that this is a good bet in terms of this is a good place for me to invest my money. Because at the end of the day, when you buy a game from Stadia, you don't own it. It's the same way that um, we're talking about digital sales anywhere. And digital sales right now are on pace to by the end of 2020 to be over 85% in the United States, which means over 85% of games bought in the United States are digital versus physical. And, you know, when we see store closings like GameStop happening, happening, you know, from time to time, GameStop is set to close another 200 stores or something like that by the end of the year, you know, digital is just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, we're talking about people being able to access games from anywhere in the future or for the next two years. Um, you know, once again, digital is going to keep getting stronger and stronger. So, um, you know, for you to invest into this platform and buy a game on here, you know, for example, they confirmed that they're going to have Cyberpunk 2077, for example. You know, do I want to give Google my $60, you know, with that fear that they can cut, you know, shut down their service at any time? Rather than going to someone like Microsoft, where I know when I give Microsoft those $60 for a digital game, you know, I'm if I'm a betting man, I'm going to put my money there knowing that I'll be able to access Cyberpunk 10 years from now. You know, I don't think a lot of players can say the same about Stadia. And um, at this point, I don't really understand why anyone would invest their money there. And I think this is something that I brought up when I was talking about Google Stadia last year, which is the other issue with Stadia is they, they can't uh, keep up with the pricing strategy of Microsoft, Sony, Epic, and Steam. When those companies do sales and they do price drops on games, you know, they're, they just won't be able to keep up. They just can't. You know, right now you can buy the Division 2 for $3 on any platform right now is three bucks, right? Division two isn't on Stadia yet for whatever reason that is. But even if it existed on Stadia right now, you would not be able to get Division two for three dollars on Stadia because Ubisoft will be losing way more money on Stadia because they don't have the base yet. They don't have that relationship. So I, I just I just don't personally see the reason I, i've never seen the reason as to why anyone would ever invest in stadia and um, unfortunately google is just not providing reasons to anyone as to why they should invest into this platform so yeah that's pretty much it uh hot releases which i will note that they were the hot releases portion of camp god was missing the last two weeks and uh, now every time I do these shows, I do sort of a rundown um, on a document. And for some reason, for the last two weeks, it was just missing from the document. And I didn't notice until the end of the recording. I was like, wait a minute, I just missed hot releases. Uh, so don't call it a comeback. But out actually today announced this morning, the Final Fantasy VII Remake demo is available to download on PlayStation 4. So be sure to check that out. March 3rd, we have Grand Blue Fantasy Versus on PlayStation 4. And then March 6th, we have Pokemon Mystery Dungeon Rescue Team DX coming for a Nintendo Switch. Those are the biggest releases for the week. Time to wrap it up. Stories we didn't have time to get to. Resident Evil 3 demo was announced last week as coming soon along with new details such as an added dodge maneuver. I mean, this game launches in April. We'd love to see this demo um, at some point before the month is over. Um, I think it'll be great for us to have. I would, I would hope, hopefully do it something before uh march 20th i think that that day really belongs to doom and animal crossing i think it'd be a great way for them to continue getting buzz ready for resident evil 3 or as early as the the first week of april i mean if i was capcom i would actually release this on on april 1st sort of a <laughs> a, a funny take on april fool's day i think that would be kind of funny for them to do uh yak club games announced shovel knight pocket dungeon um you know i think i think more and more companies need to be a lot more aware of the power of mobile. And when I first saw Shovel Knight Pocket Dungeon, which is a little bit like a combination Shovel Knight puzzle game, I looked at this and I said, why isn't this a cell phone game? This should absolutely be a mobile game only. I don't think this should even come to any other system. Maybe maybe Switch or some, or maybe the consoles after mobile launch, but I would launch this on mobile first. I think it's a great way to strengthen the Shovel Knight brand. Um, 
and just bring it over um, to another demographic, maybe even putting this on on um what you call it apple arcade or something like that i just think it's really weird that they announced this game they didn't really expressly announce platforms but i feel like if it was mobile they would have said that i feel like this game just should have been um mobile only or mobile first developers need to stop being afraid of mobile um pc storefront gog or good old good old games announced a pretty generous return policy which is 30 days no matter the reason. Like, um, This is kind of crazy. I mean, I added it to wrap, wrap it up. I really wanted to spend... But I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this. So what was weird about this is that, for those that don't know, um, Steam has what I think is a really good return policy when it comes to, to digital software, which is 14 days. As long as you've played two hours or less of the game, you can get your money back. That's a perfect, in my opinion, a perfect policy for a digital PC storefront. 14 days is more than enough for you to play a game. And two hours is long enough for you to fully understand whether A, this game runs really well or runs as well as I want it to run on my PC. um, And B, whether you really like the game or not. I think it just makes a lot of sense. And um, 30 days is just way too long. Thirty, It should not take you 30 days to play a PC game to find out whether you want it or not or whether it runs well on your system. Now, what's weird about this policy is, number one, they didn't consult developers or publishers before putting the new policy in place, which is really, really weird because they're the ones that are going to suffer from returns, right? It comes out of their bottom line. Um, and then the other weird thing is that what makes GOG unique from steam is that they are drm free and for those that don't know drm means digital rights management is basically a way you know it's built into music for example it's a way for um the owners of that digital product to ensure that you actually paid for it so you some for some games for example you have to always be online you have to do some sort of online check to ping off a server to make sure that you actually are still eligible to be able to play that game. Um, but since GOG is DRM free, then theoretically someone can now buy a game, ask for a refund, and then keep it because there is no DRM that is um, checking with a server to to find out if you still have a valid license to access that game, you know? For Steam, you can't do something like that, right? Because there's DRM on it. Uh, once you return a game, you revoke the license, so you no longer have access to play. It's removed from your library. But not with GOG. When you buy something from GOG, the game, if I'm not mistaken, has its own dedicated launcher. Um, so this just doesn't make sense. You know, even if... You know, I'm not a really big PC gamer. You know, Overwatch is probably the game that I play the most. But I'll give an example. Let's say um, at the end of this year, I decide to buy Cyberpunk. And I don't really play many PC games, so I'm not going to abuse this policy, right? I'm not buying a lot of games. I'm not going to be you know, asking to return six games to a year to try to get away with a bunch of free games. But if I were to do this once or twice a year, so let's say Cyberpunk comes out, I decide to buy it through GOG. And, you know, two weeks later, I decide for a refund. Theoretically, I'm able to keep Cyberpunk for free. I keep my money. Um, the developers of Cyberpunk uh, CD Projekt now just got me a free sale. They get no money from that product that they just sold. And I'm able to go on my merry way because why would GOG say no to me? I mean, it's my first return, right? I mean, this just doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm all for customer service. I believe in it, but this is just way too generous. You know, it's like, imagine if, you know, you, you went to Dunkin' Donuts and they said, Oh, keep your seat. You can, you know, you can return coffee 30 days from now. So I don't know. Like, this is some things that are just way too generous. And this is just one of them. It just doesn't make any sense. And I personally feel that they're going to get a lot of pressure from developers and i don't think this is going to last very long because if if i'm a developer and publisher and it really starts to to suffer my bottom line i'm just not going to launch my games on gog it just doesn't really make a lot of sense um 
And that's it. Before we go, shout out to Kazuhisa Hashimoto. The veteran Konami developer passed away at the young age of 61 last week. But his legacy will never die as he was the creator of the Konami code. Uh, code was first introduced in Gradius where Hashimoto coded it in in the middle of his development. In the 2003 interview, he revealed his origin by saying, quote, I hadn't played that much and obviously couldn't beat it myself, talking about Gradius. So I put in the Konami code because I was the one who was going to be using it. I made sure it was easy to remember. So that is a legacy behind the Konami code. I mean, it's pretty cool when you think about the legacies that individuals can leave behind and the fact that I feel like 100 years from now, we're going to see the konami code in some form in some game i mean we've seen google use it i think even bank of america had like an easter egg tied to the konami code so i think it's really cool may, may, may uh, kazuhisa hashimoto rest in peace thank you so much for joining me please follow us on twitter and instagram at camp koji for future updates once again i am joel and i will see you next week <laughs>